Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 47 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The main man philosophy was to provide funding that enabled their artists to fully explore their creative freedom, while pioneering outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. We were crazy. We did all those things with makeup, with our clothes, with our outrageousness, with our not caring about what society thought and everything. We did all that. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included David Bowie, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and Lou Reed. Oh yeah, I want him to take drugs. Because it's better than Monopoly. In this episode, we mark the 50th anniversary of the release of David Bowie's fourth album, Hunky Dory, on December 17, 1971. A groundbreaking album which, despite receiving great reviews at the time, hardly sold any copies and failed to chart, but has since become regarded as one of Bowie's finest works. Main Man founder Tony DeFreeze begins by recalling what was happening in David's career as he began writing and recording the songs that would appear on Hunky Dory. In 1971, David recorded what would become the most influential album of the new call it deconstructed David Bowie the David Bowie who becomes just Bowie and then takes on Ziggy Stardust and many other character roles going forward how did we get there we have to go back a little way to 1970 when I first met David and we started working together we evolved a process where He would come to me with ideas and suggestions and I would tell him if they could be carried out within the framework of his existing contracts, which had to be reimagined, his Mercury deal, which had to be woven into the fabric of what we were doing before it could be ultimately concluded, and the target, which was to make him the most famous rock star in the world. When those three things are considered together, some of them are clearly going to conflict. Important for David was to write more songs. The songs he had when I met him were not going to move him forward. The songs he wrote in 1970 and 71, some of them were wholly inappropriate and some of them were absolutely marvellous. <laughs> that was the... David's one specialty was he could move from the utterly ridiculous to the totally sublime. And when he did that lyrically, he wrote his best songs. I want to examine some of the lyrics of those songs for how they related to what he was seeing and hearing. And one of the most important influences for David in writing songs was that he didn't have to worry about the day-to-day function of living. On the one hand, he had a flow of money from his chrysalis deal that I'd made in 70. 
He had people who were on his side in terms of his songs. He had Angela, who was very good at managing and organising things so that David didn't have to do anything except write songs and, of course, help to produce babies as well. But leaving that aside, she took care of him in the way that, essentially, you take care of a special child. She treated David like a child who needed everything to be done so they wouldn't have to worry about anything and he could envisage and write and compose and have his bandmates around him to support him artistically but also to support his writing because David was not a great instrumentalist he wasn't a marvelous keyboard player he wasn't particularly good on any instrument he was functional on guitar but not great his writing was chords melodies and lyrics and the lyrics became in many ways the most important part so in 1971 a very influential song was written recorded and released and it was released as an eight and a half minute single which was absolutely unheard of in america or indeed in england But the song, which was written by Don McLean, was called Bye Bye, Miss American Pie, and was about a much earlier event, the fatal plane crash of three of Rock's most important figures, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Giles Richardson, otherwise known as the Big Bopper, famous for Chantilly Lace. They were the cornerstone of rock and roll especially Buddy Holly and for Don McLean who was young at the time in fact he had a newspaper round where he delivered newspapers and one of his newspaper rounds was to actually deliver this devastating news on the front cover of the papers he was delivering that's how he essentially found out about it not until 10 years later that he writes and records this astonishing song, which in many ways, because it was broadcast in 1971, Don McLean performed it on BBC, the entire song, and later on explained what the lyrics meant and who they related to, who was the king and who was the jester, and Presley and Dylan in both those cases and who were all the other people interestingly enough I've met or worked with many of the characters or saw them perform the king and queen Pete Seeger and Joan Byers the jester of course Dylan the king who's looking down while the jester steals his thorny crown and that's Elvis you have Janice featured in there and you have James Dean and of course you have that marvellous expression of the voice of the American people, the voice that was looking for redemption. And last but not least, the marching band, a reference to Sergeant Pepper and the Lonely Hearts Club band. That song was one of the first songs that 
took real people, imagined people, made up people, real events, past events, future events, and put them all together in a story. And it can be seen that when you look at some of David's songs, he then said, okay, this is what I can do. I can tell a story in a song. Now, Dylan had already done this, and many other country folk writers had done it, but they'd done it in a particular way. They'd done it specifically, in Dylan's case, probably the closest to what David became, but about a hard rain's going to fall. Times, they are a changing a rolling stone. They're about events and characters that were specifically influenced. Even Bobby's first song, the song for Woody Guthrie, was similar to the idea that he had this favourite singer-songwriter who was actually ill and later died. Dylan visited him in hospital and then wrote this song, and it became one of the songs that attracted attention and got him his first recording deal. So here is David in 1971, and he's seeing and hearing this American Pie song. And then if you look at, as an example, the lyrics for some of these important songs on Hunky Dory, you find that this particular structure has a lot to do with the songs that David did end up writing here. So an excellent example of this is Life on Mars. Bowie talks about the workers have struck for fame and Lennon's on sale again. Now in 1969 and 1970 and 71 the industrial unrest and strikes were frequent and often in the news in the UK. And this was something that David was very aware of. So when he talks about the workers of Struck for Fame, he's talking about the idea that it's no longer possible for huge corporations to simply decide what their workers' conditions will be, what their wages will be. But in effect, workers are beginning to have their own identity, their own unions, etc. And then he uses that to add to Lennon's on sale again. Now, Lennon, of course, had just left the Beatles, and in 1971 he releases his first solo album, which is Imagine. And just again, to take a line from one of David's songs, who among us could imagine that Lennon and Bowie would actually write a song called Fame Together in 1975. At that point in time, that line of lyrics, along with equally strange lyrics, Mickey Mouse's Grown Up a Cow, the spiders were absolutely unaware of what David was talking about. Some of them have said in interviews later, We'd hear this coming from the room that David was working in, not the band rehearsal room, and we just wonder, what the hell does that mean? What's coming next? And of course, next would come 
the Norfolk Broads and the mice in their million hordes. And that was even more difficult to make sense of at that point in time. So all of this kind of writing, which young people were much more likely to pick up on, because it wasn't meaningless to them, it was real to them in the sense that they were looking at future events, not so much past events, but future events. And future events could include this idea of life on Mars. And equally, on the same album, you have a song called Quicksand that was recorded in July 71. And Quicksand says, I'm not a prophet or a Stone Age man, just a mortal with the potential of a Superman. So David is talking about the idea that human beings could become superhuman beings. But he's also, in a way, forecasting what he's going to write in Life on Mars. Earlier that year, he'd written Know You Pretty Things, which was, I think, one of the first songs he wrote in 71. And that also was recorded for Hunky Dory. And there he talks about all the strangers came today and it looks as though they're here to stay. He talks about a crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me. And then he refines that later on for Starman, where it's a radio DJ, a DJ from somewhere in a starry place, playing specifically and being picked up by a teenager or a younger child and then shared with those children. He talks about the children who are going to make way for the Homo superior. And he talks about Homo sapiens have outgrown their use. All the strangers came today. All these themes came together in Starman, which of course was on his later album. But in many ways, Starman was the outcome of songs like Are You Pretty Things, Quicksand, Life on Mars, that all were leading David in the direction of creating a mythical character, which became initially Ziggy, and a mythical future where you could have a Starman visiting and liberating, especially liberating teenagers and anyone who was not fully comfortable with their gender self. So David addresses transgender, he addresses frustrations, he addresses the lack of excitement in the teenage life. And many people, people like Bono, have said that the first time they heard and saw Life on Mars and Starman was a revelation, was something that, because they were still very young, made them realise that there was a possibility that they could make music, write songs, become, in many ways, what David was offering. And that happened more rapidly in the UK than in America, primarily because we began to plan for and work towards live performances of Ziggy 
and the spiders from Mars in the UK. In order to record these songs efficiently in the studio, it was necessary to rehearse. David's earlier recordings always suffered from a lack of rehearsal, a lack of planning, and a lack of direction. Ultimately, what I brought to the process was the ability to listen to every song and decide whether or not it should be included in the session and ultimately on an album, what order. And because I'd worked with other producers, especially Mickey Most, I knew that the best way to get an efficient, but more more importantly, a convincing recording in a studio was to rehearse. Mickey would, would use the same session players, some of whom eventually became Led Zeppelin, of course, but he'd use them over and over again on different tracks by different artists with the one idea that until they knew the track and they were able to just play it without hesitation, and the best example of that is the first work I did with Mickey, which was The House of the Rising Sun. The animals had been playing that song for two years live. So when Ricky heard them play it, he knew that he could take them into a studio and do one take and make a record. And that's what he did. In David's case, you had an engineer who'd worked with the Beatles, Ken Scott, who often did multiple takes because the Beatles often wrote their songs in the studio, on the spot, and there were four of them and they had didn't always have the same idea and they tested things, they tried things out. And that made for great recordings, but they took a long time, they were complex, there were many changes, and the Beatles were already, by the time they got to working with George and Ken, a massively successful act. And EMI were quite happy to let them use studios and even bring in outside musicians without any hesitation. David wasn't in that position. David needed to make records that were going to be successful, but on a budget that wasn't nearly as large as the Beatles' budget. He also needed a band that would stick together for long enough to make a breakthrough. And we had these three lads from Hull who were perfectly adequate to do the first round of tours in England. We needed more when we got to America, so we hired more people. But by giving them an identity, by giving them a role, by making them a cohesive, possibly alien, possibly not, (laughs) trio, we also made it easier for them to see themselves as heroes in the play, as actors in this musical drama. And of course, as they started getting lots of attention from reviews and ultimately from fans, it was much easier to just imagine themselves as playing roles that they were comfortable with. So David had what I'd call a serious failure of confidence, not only in his future career, but in our relationship. In the 1970s, especially in 1970, when I started working with Stevie Wonder, I told the then cast of characters, which was David and Angela and Dana, 
and possibly Mick, if he was already on scene, which I think he was, that I was going to try and free Stevie from Motown and get him a better deal with a larger record company and move him towards having a certain amount of artistic freedom and license. And that would give me a very large footprint in the music industry and access to potentially much better opportunities for David. But it wasn't a certainty because until he turned 21, which would only happen in the following year, in 71, we couldn't be sure that he wouldn't remain at Motown or that remaining at Motown wouldn't be the best solution for him. On the one hand, David was thrilled that his manager was now talking to one of the world's most significant performers, writers and artists. On the other hand, he was massively insecure and hence, when I went to the States and started talking to Stevie and record companies and was gone for quite long periods of time, he got very, very nervous that if I did sign Stevie Wonder, and I'd already explained to them that wouldn't happen until after he was 21, but if I did, then would he be left behind? And that led to, on the one hand, a certain failure of trust, but on the other hand, it impelled David to work much harder at writing songs and making recordings that would he thought, give him a better shot at getting my full attention or more of my attention. When I came back to the UK in May of 71 and sat down with all of them and told them that I'd had a failure of communication with Stevie, that his birthday was coming up and that he had stopped communicating with me whilst I was in America. Motown had essentially sequestered him so he couldn't talk to anybody, including me, especially me. That piece of news was a massive relief to David. In fact, David and Angela, and I think Dana, came to meet me at the airport. They were so keen to know what had happened. <laughs> Maybe they were so worried about what had happened. But at any rate, it was a rare occasion for them to come and meet me at the airport. They'd never done it before. So they were, in a way, relieved, overjoyed that they were going to get my full, undivided attention. And to the extent that we needed something to play to people, and what we needed was what became the first tracks from Hunky Dory, only five from, I think five of them from David, but which included some of the important songs and would get us an opportunity to persuade record companies to listen to that content. In the interim, we had a lot of representatives from different record companies who were showing up and were saying they were interested in signing Bowie, assuming that he'd be free of Mercury. And these included MCA, and they included 
United Artists at that point, possibly Warners, but none of them were particularly attractive to me in the sense that they wouldn't have the long-term view that RCA had taken with Presley. I wanted that kind of mindset. I wanted a record company that were hungry and didn't have a lot of new artists and the ideal candidate was RCA. So although many of these folks showed up in England and came to the GEM offices and talked to us and even in some cases made offers, they were too early or in many cases it was just too little too late. But none of them presented the sort of enthusiasm that we finally got from RCA and that also worried David he knew people were coming he knew people were talking and he knew they were going away without a record deal David always had the false impression that a record deal was worth having whatever the terms which is not right the right way to look at a record deal is is it the best deal you can get and is it the best record company that is going to deal with your records and your future. And he didn't look at it that way, and I did. And that was always the focus. Ultimately, distressingly for David, it, it became too much. He didn't want to have to ask me about those kinds of decisions because it made him feel that he wasn't in control of his own affairs. But relatively speaking, none of us are in control of our own future. Our future is largely by chance, as some of it by design, and the more important your future gets, the harder you have to work to protect it. And for David, that was not something he, he understood until much later. I think much later he did understand it, but certainly not at this point in his working life or career. At this point he was still in the place where he'd had so many failures that he didn't think that he would ever actually succeed. So along with all the other problems he had was this lack of self-certainty. My job was largely to boost his ego, boost his confidence, and at the same time stop him from making, a bit like a toddler, anything that might prove to be a fatal mistake. <laughs> like putting himself up as an alternative to Tutankhamen on the cover of an album was not gonna <laughs> not gonna enhance his career and that wasn't just my opinion that was like almost certainly gonna be the case and that's a reference to the artwork that David originally wanted to appear on the cover of Hunky Dory but thankfully didn't and Tony will explain what that concept was and how the eventual much more appealing and now iconic artwork was created in the next episode there are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters, photos and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.